Hello, friends. I'm Dr. Gracie Christie, and this is Conversations with Consequences, the radio show of the Catholic Association, where we are changing the culture one conversation at a time. You can listen to Conversations with Consequences on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network at 5 p.m. on Saturdays, and also on SiriusXM Channel 130. If you want to listen to our show as a podcast, go directly to your favorite platform or to the Catholic Association.org slash podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and I'm so glad to tell you that today my friend and colleague at the Catholic Association, Maureen Ferguson, is with me, and we'll be discussing two big wins at the Supreme Court with our friend Monte Alvarado of the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty. We'll also be taking a peek at the 2020 election with Joe Biden's promise to reverse one of the rulings, making our dear little sisters of the poor offer contraception again, despite conscience protections. Later on in the show, I'll be talking with our friend Mary Fiorito of the Ethics and Public Policy Center about the rise of cancel culture and the tragic fire last weekend that burned much of San Junipero's mission in San Gabriel, California. Statues are falling and history is being rewritten, and we'll address our call as Catholics to stand for truth and beauty despite the mob mentality. First, we're thrilled to welcome Monse Alvarado to the show. Hello, Monse. Hi, I'm so grateful you invited me back. There's so much going on in <laughs> in the world, but so much going on in the world that has to do with the Supreme Court. And Beckett, as always, is holding up the light of liberty over there and defending our favorite people and our favorite causes. So you're the perfect person to walk us through some very complicated things. Because I have to tell you, as a non-legal person, even though I'm someone who's trying to keep up, reading everything that I can, and really trying to keep my attention focused on all these changes that are coming from the Supreme Court, it's really hard to understand the implications of all of it. And even to keep the history of things that are going on. For instance, our listeners all probably know that the Little Sisters were back in front of the Supreme Court and they did great. Becca did great defending them. But that even the Little Sisters is complicated, even though we, we can understand what was going on. They've been at this for a long time. Monse, can you encapsulate the Little Sisters for us and tell us what, what was this wonderful win that Beckett made happen again? Sure, absolutely. And you're completely right. This is complicated. So let's kind of break it down a little bit. The Little Sisters of the Poor have been to the Supreme Court and won twice already, right? So when the Affordable Care Act individual mandate included a rule that said that all employers had to provide and pay for contraceptives and abortion-causing drugs and services for their employees, this was under the Obama administration, Uh, the Little Sisters sued for their exemption. They wanted to be protected from this mandate, and they won, right? That's around the same time that your listeners would know that we won the Hobby Lobby case. It's just two years apart. So we can put that as big victories for religious freedom from the Obama um, contraceptive mandate. Then when they won that case and that victory, what needed to happen is something technical. When you win at the Supreme Court, it's not over. You have to change the rules that the government created. But the election hit. And so it was no longer the Obama administration that was changing the rule. It was the Trump administration. And guess what? People didn't like it. People don't like Trump doing good things for religious liberty. And so state AGs and state and state governors, you know, states around the country decided that they were going to sue the Trump administration for this change that the Supreme Court had ordered them to make. That's, you know, I, I know that you're Cuban, you would say, eso es un arroz con mango. That is such a big mix <laughs> of stuff, right? It is. It's a big mix. And so what happened at the Supreme Court? 
the Little Sisters, for the third time, were protected by the Supreme Court and affirmed the obligation of the government to account for religious exercises when they're regulating, because it was a federal agency that created and then changed the rule under two different administrations. And so federal agencies, this is the new law of the land from the Supreme Court, they cannot unnecessarily force religious people to violate their beliefs in order to further a government goal. So that is what all of this means. And it's a huge victory. It's really important both in government process, but also just for religious freedom in general to remind the government that it's not allowed to step on our religious liberty whenever it feels like it. It's so encouraging, this tremendous victory at the Supreme Court, Monse. And really, the timing couldn't be better for the Little Sisters because really they are our frontline heroic healthcare workers in this pandemic because what do they do but for the past 150 years they care for the elderly poor in nursing homes, the most vulnerable population in this pandemic. There are frontline healthcare workers, but yet they've been legally harassed by government officials, threatened with massive government fines for all these years. And it's just so heartening that after this long legal battle, they finally have this win. But do you think this is going to be a final win, Monse, or do you think they might be dragged back into court? You know, Maureen, you said it perfectly. Perfectly. That is exactly what Sister Constance was saying in her interviews after their victory. She kept saying, we can't wake up one day and protect the elderly, poor and dying, protect the end of life and ignore the beginning of life. We have to be consistent in the way that we defend um, our principles and our beliefs and the way that we serve people. We serve all people, right? And so it's been beautiful to see how the light that the pandemic has shown, unfortunately, it's it's a reality for us, but there's some fruits that come from it. And that is seeing the good work of the little sisters and how important they are and how marginalized the elderly and the poor are in our society and how the church comes to their needs. So that's just, you know, circling back on what you were saying. I totally agree with you on the whether this is over or not. You know, we'll have to wait and see. It's an election year. So you're going to see that candidates are going to want to draw their line in the sand about who they want to go after. And it's very sad when, when you see that the Little Sisters are in the fray again in the public because people think that they're someone that they can beat. Well, after the Supreme Court protects you three times, I think it's, you know, a glutton for punishment who's going to want to go after them again. Monse, when I was reading up on uh, the, the, the victory of the Little Sisters, I couldn't help but notice that the side that supports the contraceptive mandate, the left, the, the Democrats, they made it sound like the earth, like the sky was falling in, that there were hundreds of thousands of women across the country, or maybe millions, it sounded like, who suddenly would not be able to access birth control. What's the truth? So first, in even before the Little Sisters case came in, you, you have Title X, and Title X allows women to have their contraceptives and, their, and these drugs and services covered by the government. They are effectively free. There are a lot of places that subsidize these drugs and services. Walmart does. You know, I think it's $6 for you to go and get contraceptives there. Um, and if that's too costly, now you have NERCS who allows you to, you know, sign up and receive it for free in your home. They mail it to you because of the pandemic, because it's hard to get to doctors. So it's a lie when they say that there's an access issue associated with contraceptives today. And the reality is that the Little Sisters employees are the most bullish in defending them. They don't want these drugs and services. They know who their employer is. They didn't come here to ask the sisters to violate their religious liberty. So the numbers that you see floating around are their scare tactics that are used. They can't figure out a way to stick it to the Little Sisters, right? They're just too sincere. The reality is that it's it's hard to blame the sisters for something that they aren't doing. And so they have to make up facts. 
And the 126,000 women that they keep talking about are all women that are eligible for Title X benefits. They're all eligible to have someone else pay for these drugs and services without forcing nuns to be handing out their contraceptives. That's right, Monse. It, it, it never even really made sense. It, it defies common sense that the government needs to force nuns to distribute abortifacients and contraceptives. It just goes to show how this was a political agenda from the start. We know, of course, we're getting closer to the 2020 elections. Many Catholics are wondering about the strength of this ruling and what the Little Sisters can expect down the road. And sadly, we know that the presumptive Democratic nominee, Joe Biden, has already made it very clear that he will go back to the policy of forcing these nuns to facilitate distribution of contraception and abortifacients to their employees, because, of course, this was the Obama-Biden policy in the first place. And the very same day that the Supreme Court finally gave such a strong ruling for the Little Sisters, Joe Biden was out with a statement the very same day saying that he would like to go back to that policy. One, it's sad to see it because I feel sad for the Little Sisters who they didn't want this fight and they tried to avoid it as much as possible but they're also the kind of women who in the same way that they're going to stand up for the elderly poor they're going to stand up for the church they've given their lives to the church so it's sad that they're going to have to continue fighting if they do um or that someone would hang that over their heads it just tells me something about their character but i I will say that biden lost this the obama biden administration lost this already in 2014 and in 2016 twice with the hobby lobby case and with the little sisters case so he might be forgetting history. Maybe he's having a lapse in memory, but it was his administration that lost these cases unanimously by the Supreme Court. I don't know exactly what he was hinting at with that, but it doesn't have the context of the truth and the history that's already on the books. If you're just joining us, we are talking with the executive director of the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty, Monse Alvarado, about our big win, Beckett's big win, win before the Supreme Court uh, on the Little Sisters of the Poor case. You know, Monse... I, I, I don't want this moment to pass bef- without saying from, uh, from, this, from the viewpoint of a physician, the fact that it, it's almost like we lost part of, of a battle that nobody wants to relitigate, which is that um, in the, in the um, Affordable Care Act, birth control is denoted as preventive health care. That's what it's under. It's it's a it's a it's a kind of preventive health care. And as a physician, I want to just point out, and I'm sure that this is something that Beckett considered, although it's not a legal a winning legal strategy, I suppose. Um, but from a physician perspective, a contraception is never a preventive health care because it prevents pregnancy, which is not a disease. And in the times uh, that uh, hormones are used to treat certain kinds of um, menstrual irregularities for women, then it's not birth control. It's uh, medicine used to treat a menstrual irregularity. I'm sure that didn't come up in the arguments, but is that something that at Beckett you kept in mind, the fact that it's not preventive health care? Um, you know, we don't take a position on what these drugs and services do because we're a religious liberty law firm. But I can tell you that the Little Sisters of the Poor as faithful Catholics deal with this all the time. You know, they do cover in their health care plan through Christian Brothers in the way that a lot of religious employers do. There's this myth saying that women who have um, who need hormonal therapy for other conditions are going to be um 
going to have that taken away and that that's really what everyone wanted um that's actually not true those those things are covered just as you describe them if there is if it's a hormonal therapy if it's medicine it's treated in a completely different way than when you are thinking about them as um life-ending drugs or contraceptives and so um that battle although it's not something that anyone wants to actually discuss in the media it's definitely one that um that the sisters discuss you know as in knowing what things do and what they don't do and what they believe um and it's one that the national catholic um bioethics association discusses all the time and i believe that they had an amicus brief in this as well explaining the medical side of it you know explaining the science Mm -hmm. and the biology that comes with um what what that means you know and and those definitions well but yes and, and you make a very good point because a lot of people who who argue for the for the contraceptive mandate and against the little sisters they they are mistaken and they say that then women who need it as medicine are going to be denied and that is absolutely not true so thank you for pointing that out Monse. and um, the little sisters were not the only win for Beckett and and I and I have to say for religious liberty and for all Americans uh, this session at the Supreme Court we also had a very important case Our Lady of Guadalupe school versus Morrissey Berru and it was also a seven to two decision which is very very heartening can you tell us about that one Monse? Sure. So, you know, it was it was two schools, two consolidated cases um, outside of the coming from the Archdiocese of Los Angeles that um, decided not to renew the contracts of two of their uh, teachers. And those teachers were not adhering to the um, the way that they wanted those um, that they wanted religion taught in those schools. So what does that mean? Why is that such an important thing? You think, well, contract renewals and things like that seem to be something that schools deal with every day. Absolutely. But for religious schools in particular, um, the, the schools employ teachers whose duties include teaching religion and leading students in daily prayer and taking them to mass. And that means that they have to be both well formed in what that means and prepared to carry on and model the faith for those students. They're teaching the next generation of religious people what it means to be religious and what the foundations of that religion um, really are. That definitely matters to Catholics, but it also matters to a lot of minority religions, you know, Jewish schools, Muslim schools, particularly Jewish day schools, honestly, if we if we think about the number of and the variety of schools that we have in the U.S. and, and Protestant schools. So um, in a supermajority ruling, the court clarified, they, they had defi- decided this in 2012 already unanimously. So they clarified um, that it is important for schools to have the freedom to choose who can teach the faith to the next generation of believers without government intrusion, without the government telling them, well, you're not allowed to fire this person for this reason, or here's the criteria for hiring and firing. Why? Because if the government can choose the teachers, then the government can choose the curriculum. They can choose what is taught. And in the United States, that's illegal. That's a violation of the separation of church and state. And and so the, the court held that the First Amendment's ministerial exception gives these Catholic elementary schools the power to decide uh, who they want to hire and fire in their teachers, uh, free from state interference. But, but what the court made clear, could you help us understand this? Is sure. that 
it, it's not so, the ministerial exception is not so much about the title that a person has, say the priest, um, or even a religion teacher, but rather what the person does. So just for example, because in a Catholic school, you even have, uh, you know, a coach who might pray with the, the players before the game, or the biology teacher that teaches the synthesis of faith and reason and the science of biology, but also the the wonder of uh, the created world. So can you explain that this how this ministerial exception doesn't just apply to a minister, quote unquote? Absolutely. So they actually said that the ministerial exception name, which used to be the name of this kind of class of people that were protected from government intrusion, you know, from government power um, in Catholic schools or in religious schools, actually, because the original case was for a Lutheran school. Um that it's a misnomer, that it doesn't actually explain properly what this protection means. And so they kind of hinted at calling it the Hosanna Tabor exception, which is what it used, what what that case was in 2012, that nice win for the, for the Lutheran school. Um, And it's twofold. It's not about what the teacher, um, the teacher's name is. It's about what you, just like you said, it's about what they do. It's about what they teach and their role within the school, their role defined not by any kind of title because titles can be discriminatory by religion. They can be religiously discriminatory and that the structure of a Protestant church and the structure of a Catholic church and the structure of a a Jewish um, school, they're going to be very different. If I say minister to a Catholic school, well, we don't really have ministers ministers per se. We have priests, we have laity, we have lay religious. I mean, we have all these other ways of calling the people that teach the faith. Um, and in the same thing, I mean, you've got the rabbi, the cantor, in a Jewish day school, you don't really have ministers. So what is what that was causing a lot of confusion in the courts for people when they were trying to figure out, well, where does my school fit into this? And Justice Alito said something really beautiful when he said, we're applying a Protestant fr- framework to a pluralistic society, right? So that doesn't really fit anymore. Um, And if we really want to explain it to people and avoid having these issues in the courts all the time, we need to clarify. And so they basically said that, you know, everyone, every school is afforded their First Amendment right to make their own decisions about who is entrusted with this essential duty of education and the faith. Monse, a week or two before the this great win of Our Lady of Guadalupe, which defines this ministerial exception and expands it properly, we believe, we had a, a very big loss at the Supreme Court, and we had the case of Bostock, in which the, sex, the, the word sex in employment discrimination law, the word sex was expanded to mean sexual identity and Sex, sexual orientation. And this was a loss from a Catholic perspective because as people who believe in traditional and, and anthropomorphic and natural family and, and marriage structure, this uh, makes it difficult for us, uh, for instance, to hire teachers that uh, exemplify and live out in their lives that kind of our, our own values and ideals when it comes to marriage and family. So how does this, uh, this win in Our Lady of Guadalupe help us with this loss in, in this first case of Bostock? Of, of course. So, yes, this was a big change in the law with the Bostock um, redefining uh, sex to include uh, gender identity and um, sexual orientation. And so the moment that you do that, you are basically changing the code in about 160 different statutes that Justice Alito cited in his dissent in this decision, um, where you're where you're affecting basically how how the government treats people in discrimination, employment discrimination situations. Right. Um, however, 
part of the decision also included some really big notes about the religious liberty implications. One, that they would be worked out in the coming years in the courts, so we can look forward to even more litigation, even more work for my attorneys and all kinds of religious freedom attorneys around the country. Um, but also that um, robust protections are needed for religious organizations seeking to hold their beliefs regarding sexuality and gender and for that to be reflected in employment practices. Now, that says a lot. It's a big garble, right? That basically means that exactly what happened in the Our Lady of Guadalupe schools case, it consequently is what should follow. You should be independent from these government laws that change, um, you know, and that go walk away from the binary definition of sex so that you can live according to your religious beliefs and raise your families and teach your families um, according to your conscience, right? So just because the government is doing something doesn't mean that religious groups have to adhere to that. And that, and it does mean that the court has to take seriously protections for them. So you're going to see a lot more cases. You're going to see a lot more cases that are going to basically uh, parse out what this means in what situation specifically and a couple more that are you know in in the next term already so it's, you're not gonna have to wait a couple of years to see what happens here you're gonna see it right away and you saw it with the 7-2 decision with our lady of guadalupe that unanimous i'm uh, sorry majority decision that protected schools from some of these you know changes in the law that would be harmful to them um and you saw it also with the little sisters of the poor doubling down on this idea that in a pluralistic society, you don't have to crush religious people for the government to do what it needs to do. So, Monte, can we ask you to make some predictions about how uh, faith-based schools, Catholic schools and other faith-based schools will fare in future lawsuits? Because it does seem as if the Our Lady of Guadalupe win being a 7-2 to two decision, it seems like there was broad agreement in the court on this. But yet, I don't know, there's a feeling that we're still a kind of on shaky ground when it comes to our right to transmit our faith to our children. And we know that schools are at the heart of the mission of the Catholic Church and other faith-based schools. So so do you, do you think we're on pretty strong footing going forward, or do you think we're going to need to wait and see? I think we are on strong footing, and I would just note that alongside these other two cases, we had the Espinoza decision, this great um, school choice decision that said that um, you couldn't discriminate against religious groups when there was a, you know, any kind of a school funding program or voucher program or textbook lending program that existed in a state. So we're getting rid of anti-Catholic bigotry-inspired laws called Blaine Amendments that were being used basically as excuses to limit government partnerships with religious schools. And so when you take that victory and then you take all of the wording within the Bostock decision is as bad as it may have been for religious groups, you know, that they don't see themselves reflected in the law and what they believe reflected in the law. When you see what was said about RIFRA um, as a super statute, this one part of the law that balances religious needs with secular needs, right? Um, if that protection is a super protection within the law, and then you get the Our Lady win that tells you that religious schools have a very special place in American society that needs to be protected from the government. There's a lot of hope there. And as, um, as, as people who are part of religious groups and religious ministries and religious schools, we shouldn't let the fear gag us. We shouldn't let the, the worry of the future stop us from confidently and courageously doing what we need to do um, to, to, to live good lives in America. Because the court is giving you the green light. You just have to take it.
Monsa, you referred to RIFRA as a super statute. Can you explain what you mean by that? And this, of course, is the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. How, How is that a super statute? What does that mean? So the Religious Freedom Restoration Act is this wonderful act, you know, that was passed by Congress. It was bipartisan, protecting religious freedom and particularly religious minorities, you know, groups that don't have loud voices that need other people protecting them. And it protects people of all religious faiths, you know, Anglicans, Zoroastrians, Buddhists, Christians, Muslims. (laughs) And um, and in in doing so, a lot of people have been trying to um, say that it's not important, right? Oh, it's RIFRA. It's just a statute. Actually, the Supreme Court just said that courts have to take it seriously, that they have to take it into account when they're making decisions and that legislators have to take that into account when they're creating laws or creating regulations. That's what super statute means. It means you have to pay attention to it. And what it says about balancing religion and government interests, so what the government wants to do versus what the religious people need to do, there's a very big difference there. Religious people don't just want to do things. They are compelled by their belief in God to do something. They believe in their heart of hearts that they must do the right thing. Like Gracie believes that she must help people get better because she's a physician, but because she's compelled by her religious beliefs to be a good doctor. So when you take that I must do this because I'm religious and the government needs to do this because the government wants to do it. You have to balance it. And that's what RIFRA does. Monse, the last four years with President Trump, almost four years, uh, he has been a strong defender of religious liberty in many ways and also of pro-life positions, but definitely of religious liberty, which is what we're talking about here. If we don't have a President Trump for the next four years, if we instead uh, elect President Biden as a country, what do you think will happen? What kind of blows to religious liberty do you you see happening? I can see that the Supreme Court has been consistently delivering on on religious liberty fairly well. But what about the administration change if that happens? You know, that's a that's a wait and see one, because um, it depends on who's in office and it depends on the kind of people that are there. And I really do hope I really hold out the hope that the Supreme Court is sending strong enough singles and signals and will continue to do so next term in the middle of the election. I mean, we're going to hear a really important case for religious freedom, defending Catholic adoption and foster care out of Philadelphia in November. So right at the same time that we are about to go to the polls, um, these are issues that the Supreme Court is telling lawmakers to take seriously. They're issues that we as individuals should be telling our local community to take seriously. Um, and, and at one point, we're going to have to walk away from relying on Uh, the federal government to to get this right and and push our local governments to get it right. So I would say that we have to wait and see, but there is a role for us as individuals to stand up, be courageous and be informed. Oh, well, thank you, Monse. Those are excellent words. And and I think you're 100% right. And thank you so much for your time and expertise today. We are so blessed to have you at the helm of the Beckett Fund. Thank you for all that you do. And we will keep you and your important work in our prayers. Thank you, Monse. Thank you both. To learn more about Monse Alvarado and the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty, make sure to check out beckettlaw.org. Next on Conversations with Consequences, Mary Fiorito joins us. She's from the Ethics and Public Policy Center to discuss an alarming number of Catholic statues and churches being burned and vandalized, including a San Junipero mission in California. Next, right here on EWTN Radio.
Welcome back to Conversations with Consequences, the weekly radio show of the Catholic Association, broadcasting every Saturday at 5 p.m. on EWTN Radio. I'm really happy to welcome our dear friend Mary Fiorito back to Conversations with Consequences. She's a Cardinal Francis George Fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. She's an attorney and a fierce Catholic voice in the public square. Welcome to the show, Mary. Oh, thank you for asking me, Gracie. It's a pleasure to be with you again. Well, Mary, there's so much to talk about, uh, especially with someone like you who's a lawyer. And there's been so much going on uh, at the Supreme Court, but it's almost like our society, our general culture, is mirroring all these big uh, movements as we switch around with religious liberty and what's proper expression and what is not. And so, for instance, just to bring one thing up, one of the missions in California, this beautiful mission, San Gabriel, uh, was burnt over the weekend. One of the missions that St. Junipero Serra uh, founded many centuries ago. What's going on in in the United States with, with religion, do you think? Well, you know, the, the 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 burning of the mission in the Los Angeles Archdiocese, I will not say it with the beautiful accent that you can, um, <laughs> Brenzi, but it, that was particularly heartbreaking. It's a 249-year-old structure that was founded by St. Unipero Serra himself, had a great deal of not only historical context and importance, but as Archbishop Gomez said, this was really the spiritual cornerstone. I thought that was a very beautiful way to put it. I know they are considering arson as a possible source of the fire that's not been definitively concluded yet. And Archbishop Gomez was very careful to say, let's wait until we know for sure before we, you know, jump to conclusions. We want to have all the facts in front of us. Uh, But it did, from what I read this morning, appear to start in the choir loft and um, did have a number of suspicious, you know, elements to it. But uh, even knowing that this morning, um, the Archdiocese was still issuing caution uh, about making any conclusion but you know you have that you have um, a statue of our lady that was defaced in the archdiocese of boston you know beautiful statue of mary with the word idol and black uh, spray paint on her um there was a statue of Our Lady here in the Chicago area where I live that was um, toppled and then her her head cut off and and then the church in florida also this weekend where a gentleman came in while people were at mass and was the place in gasoline and set it on fire and thank goodness they were able to escape uh he's been charged with arson because the police apprehended him but you know he apparently may have had some mental health issues as well it's it's sort of not clear but it's you know this this attempt to completely destroy anything that doesn't fit this sort of completely secular you know tone that that the some in the country seem to be adopting that you know they they don't seem to grasp that in order to be a united states citizen yes church and state separation is appropriate but it doesn't mean that the government has to be hostile to religion it just means that the government has to be neutral towards religion not hostile to it you so this is why we have the free exercise clause of the First Amendment, which allows people to freely practice their faith. So, you know, I know there has been some talk about, um, you know, Jesus 
Jesus and his, you know, uh, what, what's the phrase, uh, white white Jesus and his, you know, European heritage, you know, mother. Um, this re- this also represents suppression of some sort, and it's very distressing to even hear those words. I mean, I think for any Catholic, and particularly those who you know have a devotion to Our Lady, you don't want to hear either Our Lady or Our Lord spoken about in that way. You know, the man who came to save all and loves all and created all is somehow now a symbol of oppression to some people. You know, that really just strikes at your heart because it's just so opposite the message of Jesus. Our Catholic religion specifically, not just Christianity, but our Catholic religion specifically is a universal religion. That's what the word Catholic means, That right? is what Catholic it means. means universal. But, yes. and, that is, and that is how we as Catholics experience it. My, my interaction with Our Lady is very much uh, focused on her as Our Lady of Guadalupe. Um, I grew up in Mexico where she is something, she is a mother figure to mm-hmm. so many yes. hundreds of millions of Latin Americans. Her brown face, her beautiful features, which mirror our features. And this repeats itself all over the world. We have Our Lady of China. Of right, course. Our Lady of Akito in Japan. My husband lived in Japan for many years, so he developed sort of, of a devotion to Our Lady under that title. Right. Our Black uh, Virgin Marys, like um, Our Lady of the Rule, de la Regla, uh, yes. and so many more like that. that we, we see right. our faith as 100% compatible with every culture, ethnicity, race, every age. And this is so shocking to watch our statues, our churches, our beliefs being attacked as though mm-hmm. they represent one tiny subset of America. Yeah. And, and you know, too, I, I always think of, in, as you mentioned, the different titles of Our Lady that, you know, being a good mother and you're the mother of many children. So, you know, this well, you try to meet your own children where they are when you're dealing with a particular child and you know that your children are different and you treat child A a little differently than you, you know, if you have an extroverted child A like I do and then child B who's extremely introverted, I don't interact with them the same way. So our mother, being a good mother, interacts with her children in the way that they that they can best understand her and she them. So, you know, it's it just seems to me that there's such ignorance and I mean that not in a pejorative way, I mean that in just a very literal way, lack of knowledge, what our Lord and our Lady um, represent. And what I fear is going to come from this is I think there's already a great deal of ill will that's been generated by some people who are protesting the mistreatment of, of Black Americans in particular by the police, but it's going to generate even more ill will if houses of worship begin to become targets. And I think then there's it is going to shut down already Already it's difficult to have a conversation, even with someone who is a friend about these topics. If this kind of behavior escalates, it was bad enough when it was stores and little mom and pop shops that were took two generations to build to the big, you know, targets and Nike stores and what have you. That was bad enough and hard enough on people who saw, you know, their livelihoods and their neighborhoods destroyed. But there's something very different that happens when people's houses of worship begin to be attacked. And people, I, I think this is going to change the conversation a lot. And there may, and maybe that kind of pushback needs to happen. You know, maybe we have to say, listen, you want to sit down and have a good, solid conversation. You cannot go and destroy property, but particularly 
property that carries with it significant meaning for people. So for it, w- it would be like, you know, it was like when 9-11, right? When the Pentagon, I mean, what did they go after? The big symbols of the United States that represent us as a people. Uh, there was one plane headed for the White House. There was one, you know, that was the one that went down in Shanksville, but the Pentagon and then the, the, the trade towers. I mean, the, the places and the buildings that sort of represented who we were both politically, but also, you know, our economy, our free economy. And so that just I just hope we're, we're not going to have, I mean, it's domestic terrorism, and I hope we're not going to see an increase in it. Mary, as, we, as we've seen, there have been terrible targeted attacks on uh, symbols of our entire nation, like uh, Washington and Jefferson and even mm-hmm. Mount Rushmore, the, the, all, the, all the ugly rhetoric and then some violence and terrorism against uh, these symbols. But I feel, I'm feeling it a lot from the Hispanic perspective, I have to say. I know you're following me on Twitter. <laughs> and I follow yes, you. I do. I tweeted a little while ago. I said they came for our churches and I showed a picture of San, San Gabriel in California. They came for our saints and I showed a picture of San Junipero. And I said they're coming for our food and I showed a picture of oh. Goya, which we have our Hispanic, yes. our right. Hispanic right, food. Right. <laughs> so Goya Foods, our listeners may not know, Goya Foods is a is a huge Hispanic food producer and distributor. And any Hispanic American's uh, uh, pantry is full of these products. Some of the things mm-hmm. that we use every single day and we couldn't right. imagine cooking without Goya. So uh, there's been a backlash because the CEO of Goya actually expressed uh, support for President Trump and in his own yes. personal um, capacity, not from the company, right. but as a, on his personal Correct. capacity. So there has been a terrible backlash against Goya Foods, and I think it's now turning into a boycott. People are going out, especially to buy Goya food, because there is a majority, there is, I believe, a silent majority out there of people yes. who want America to repaint to remain a pluralistic society where people right. of different views, whether they're political, cultural, religious, can coexist uh, with mutual respect. Yes. And, you know, there's, uh, in addition to the Goya Foods, I was reading in, I think it was the New York Post, Gracie, a story about um, a local restaurant owner, apparently owns a restaurant in Brooklyn or something like that, that's been, you know, kind of a, a beloved location in the community for many, many years, 30 or more years, a sandwich shop of some sort. And the owner was interviewed by, like, the local, whatever, the local ABC station or something, and mentioned that he had he had voted for Donald Trump and that he thought his his economic prosperity had done quite well under the administration until obviously till the coronavirus hit and then, you know, his company was put at great peril. And the attacks just for saying I voted for him organized Facebook groups, um, you know, defacement of his property, threats against people who would go in there to eat. I mean, and, and, you know, in, in tort law, uh, in American tort law, there is something called tortious interference with business. So if you act in a way and you can prove that a certain person or group's actions um, destroyed your business and did it recklessly, um, then there is there is a legal remedy there. Now, whether or not this particular restaurant owner would be able to avail himself of that remedy, I don't know. But, you know, I hope some of these protesters realize, you know, Yes, you have freedom of speech, which means that the government can't interfere with what you say, but you also have an obligation to responsible speech. 
and you can be held accountable for irresponsible speech. You know, the very famous line from the Supreme Court decision, you can't yell fire in a crowded theater. There, there are restrictions on your speech, and those include, um, you know, again, tortious interference with someone's um, business, someone's way of life. If you're just joining us, this is Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and we're talking to Mary Fiorito. She's the Cardinal Francis George Fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. So, Mary, in, in this uh, sort of enthusiasm of iconoclasm, <laughs> which is happening in, in our country right now, the fact that we're feeling it now as Catholics, uh, that um, there's there's this misunderstanding about the church, the history of the church, uh, and, and also a willful disregard for all the good things that the church brings, uh, a lot of ignorance, as you say. I wanted to read this to you from Professor Adrian Vermeule from Harvard. Uh, so he wrote this yesterday, I think. I suspect the Catholic future in America won't be lurid, direct persecution, but private arsons and other crimes to which the authorities turn a blind eye, harassment by endless litigation, gradual legal encroachments, and silencing by quasi-public tech platforms. Now, mm. that's that's a pretty dark prophecy, but mm-hmm. it seems to me that with the Supreme Court decisions that we've had lately, and they're too complicated to get into in the few minutes we have left, right. but there does seem to be an acknowledgement that our religious uh, freedom, our ability to live in the public square is becoming more and more narrow, mm-hmm. and we're going to have to depend on things like the ministerial exception and the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, even just to hold our Catholic schools and churches open. Do you think that this prophecy is too dark, or do you think he puts his finger on it? I don't even think it's a prophecy. I think it's already happening. I had a headline that that read, you know, $3.5 billion in aid goes to the U.S. Catholic Church. Okay, so for starters, there's no such entity as the U.S. Catholic Church. That doesn't exist. That's not an an organization. No, people live in particular archdioceses or dioceses. Churches are local. You know, each ordinary or head of a diocese reports directly to the Pope in Rome. So there's no, like, head American bishop that then all our bishops report to, and then he reports to the Holy Father. That's not how it works. So we have local churches. We are, we are a, you know, national faith, but made up of many smaller local churches. And a lot of that aid money, uh, which was widely available to people, you know, who had uh, organizations or businesses or charitable endeavors of less than 500 employees, could apply for so that they wouldn't be laid off. And if you took that money, that PPP loan, you had to guarantee that none of your employees would be uh, laid off for the next, uh, I think it was a two and a half month loan. So to keep everybody from going on to unemployment at the same time. So they included things like Catholic elementary schools. They included things like Catholic food pantries and local Catholic charities, uh, charitable organizations, maternity homes. So it was a, it was an accurate number of a multitude of different kinds of entities. I mean, it's, it's ridiculous that anyone would even complain about a loan that was, again, made widely available to anyone from any religious denomination and from any nonprofit could apply for this money, which I tried to explain over and over again to people who were making very, very ignorant comments and the hatred that they expressed to the Catholic Church that no, because of the sex abuse scandal, the Catholic Church should get nothing. There are a multi, if you want to talk about sex abuse, particularly of vulnerable minors, you all you got to do is look to places like the Boy Scouts, look to the, the, Chicago public, public, the public schools, the public schools, <laughs> exactly, you know, and this is something, this isn't new, the abuse stuff isn't new. If you go all the way back to the uh, Bush presidency as part of the No Child 
Left Behind Act, there was actually a study commissioned. The researchers who did it said, compared to the public schools, the Catholic Church is doing a pretty darn good job because mm-hmm. they found that one in 10 of public school students will be sexually abused or harassed by the time they graduate from 12th grade. One wow. in 10. Not not even close, but people love to demonize the Catholic Church. Unfortunately, and, it's a human problem. Isn't it? Yes, it cuts across. It, it cuts across all all categories. Right. And Mary, again, not to we, justify it, but yeah, we don't have a lot of time left. But before we before we have to say goodbye, this uh, cancel culture that appears to be coming for the Catholic Church pretty strongly. How can yes. we? How can we Catholics uh, amplify our voice and uh, defend ourselves? Do you think in the big well, picture? I think- yeah, first of all, we have to defend ourselves. So, for example, if you are on, if you, like you and I, have social media accounts, just try to be charitable, but very just pithy and short with your facts. That is like, so, for example, with this long thing, no, that's not true. Most of this went to schools and charitable organizations, which actually save the taxpayers money. And then leave it at that. Make your comment and go on. We can't be, I think we were a little too... Um, because of the sex abuse scandal, many people who could speak for the church and would normally maybe in private, you know, private conversation feel like they can't say anything because of the sex abuse scandal. Well, that was not the fault of Catholic lay people. You know, in fact, it was Catholic lay people who really called for greater accountability. I think we need not to not to let that shame you into being silent. And if that's used as a cudgel against you, just say, you know, I abhor child abuse, whether it takes place in the Boy Scouts or in national gymnastics or in the public school system. And just have one of those two things ready to kind of say. But definitely we have to be present in the public square. This is not a time for us to, you know, to be quiet about it. Um, And I think we need to, you know, among ourselves as Catholics say, if they come for us, we're going to stand up and say back off. We, you know, I think we need to be able to defend ourselves and not to let ourselves be shamed and canceled into into silence. I mean, the only way sometimes to defeat a bully is to stand up to them. And this is what is happening. Um, people are being bullied into silence. And, um, and bullies t- tend to be cowards, generally speaking. So just stand up to the bully and say, I'm sorry, you, you will not do this to us. And I think, you know, like there's a, that old saying, the devil always overplays his hand. I think that's what we're seeing here. I think we're seeing a big overplaying of the hand uh, by the devil, and I pray that the that the sleeping giant or the Catholic lay person, you know, will will wake up and try to do their best. But that being said, always do it with charity and love, as Bishop Barron so beautifully reminded everyone last week. Um, we can't we can't be part of the can- the cancel culture either. If you don't like the people who voted for Trump, you simply quietly go about your day and don't patronize that business or don't. But don't you know. Don't calumnize people either, because calumny is a sin. Well, thank you, Mary. That's that's wonderful advice for our listeners. And thank you for joining us on Conversations with Consequences. I hope that we have you on soon. Oh, my privilege, Grace. I'd be happy to come back. Thank you so much, and God bless your listeners. You can find Mary Fiorito on Twitter at Mary Fiorito and also at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, eppc.com. Look for her writings uh, in many news outlets, including the National Catholic Register. Every morning, the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day. Items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you. Don't let the world take you by surprise. Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org.
And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a privilege for me to be with you as we enter into the consequential conversation the risen Lord Jesus wants to have with each of us this Sunday. Last week, Jesus gave us the parable of the sower, seed, and soil to indicate to us how he wants us to receive his word and his work within us. We know from our basic knowledge of farming what normally occurs once a seed has been implanted in good soil. It starts to grow and eventually produces fruit. And those fruit likewise contain within many seeds that can be planted elsewhere. Spiritually, the same thing is supposed to happen. With a hat trick of different images in this Sunday's Gospel, Jesus describes that transition from a fertile disciple to a fruitful apostle, which we begin to share what we ourselves have received. His words contain three very important lessons about how the kingdom of God grows. So far as each of us has been called and chosen by God through his church to enter into and expand his kingdom, these three parables are deeply relevant to who we are and what God calls us to do. In one parable, Jesus tells us that the church, like a mustard seed, starts small but will grow to be huge. In a second, he adds that the members of the church are meant to function in the world like yeast does in bread. We're supposed to make everything rise. In the third, he states that the church's growth doesn't happen in a vacuum. There's also an enemy in the field sowing weeds to try to wreck God's harvest. In other words, to destroy you, me, and those we know and love. Three parables go together and are meant to guide us at every moment of the church's life. The first parable is that the church begins like a tiny mustard seed. From the small seed of Christ implanted by God the Father in Mary's womb, to the calling of just a few disciples and apostles filled with the Holy Spirit, the church was born and grew, and grew into the largest of shrubs in which countless people throughout the ages, including whole nations, have been able to come and find shelter in her branches. That tree continues to live, and we're branches on Jesus the vine. The branches of the church extend in areas of great sunshine and of great darkness, with all of us taking our roots in that one event, that one piece of soil on Calvary, that one seed of Jesus, the grain of wheat who fell to the ground three times and died, but rose again like a plant in springtime, giving life to all of us throughout time. This lesson of the mustard seed recurs throughout church history. So many religious orders and apostolates that the Lord has raised up to help the church began small, often with one saint. But over the course of sufferings and patience, they grew to be enormous. So many Catholic parishes began with just a handful of poor, committed families. But over the course of years and decades, with sacrifices, time, and the help of the Lord, grew to be huge. Even if some of us are living in an area in which the church is shrinking, the Lord has permitted it, I believe, so that we can all experience anew the full and exhilarating meaning of this parable through beginning again, beginning smaller like the new mustard seed planted from that tall tree and then growing. The second image Jesus gives us to describe the growth of his kingdom in the church is that of yeast and bread. The bread is the whole world, and we Christians are called to be the leaven. One Christian in a neighborhood, or one truly Catholic family on a street, or one faithful Catholic in a workplace or school should be enough over time to transform that neighborhood, street, school, or workplace. The true Christian is the opposite of a bad apple. We know that one bad apple can quickly corrode a whole bushel. Christians are supposed to be the good apples. We're supposed to be the yeast that can make the whole world rise to God. Just think about what these individuals did. Teresa of Calcutta, Pio of, Pio, Pio of Pietrelcina, John Paul, Francis, Dominic, Francis Xavier Cabrini, Elizabeth Seton, and so many others. 
Their one life changed those of almost everyone around them. God can give us the same grace to have that impact in the circles we inhabit. We need to grasp that this hope, this growth doesn't happen in vacuum. Jesus' third parable concerns the fact that while the Lord wants this growth to be occurring, there's an enemy trying to sabotage his plans. Jesus identifies that enemy straight out as the devil. The same time the Lord is trying to plant, sow good seed, the children of the kingdom, the devil is sowing those who are beholden to him and his lies, the ones Jesus called the children of the evil one who cause others to sin and do evil. They're the anti-yeast who rather than lifting up everyone toward God, bring people down to behave without faith or supernatural vision, to behave more like proud devils, to behave morally, sometimes like animals. Does anyone deny that these weeds exist in our world and that the field of our culture is becoming more populated with them? From those pushing abortion and the redefinition of marriage and the family, to those getting states to sell pot, to television channels and websites pushing porn, to politicians seeking to eliminate religious freedom, to celebrities exhibiting irresponsible, materialistic, and hedonistic lifestyles. Some of these weeds are even in the church. Catholics who are more attuned to the spirit of the age than to the Holy Spirit. There are two lessons Jesus gives us in this third parable. The first is that there is good seed and bad seed together, growing up together. The weeds and the wheat Jesus refers to in the Middle East were indistinguishable during the early phase of growth. Not even expert farmers could tell the difference between them. When they grew enough to be distinguished, their roots were so intertwined that you couldn't separate them without ripping the wheat out by the roots as well. So the lesson is that one needs to let both grow. Take them all out eventually and separate them on sifting tables, lest the good wheat be contaminated by the toxic fruit of the weeds. By this parable, Jesus is saying that the same patience and prudence have to be exercised with, pro with re respect to the proclamation of his kingdom. We can't really tell the difference between the good and the bad, especially early in life. If we did, Paul would have been gone, Augustine would have been gone, Mary Magdalene would have been gone. We can't judge by present appearances. We need to wait until the end when Jesus himself will judge. Jesus is telling us we shouldn't be surprised or overly discouraged when we find bad seed in the church. Those who, for example, live contrary to the gospel. We shouldn't pretend that what they're doing is right, but we shouldn't be shocked that they're there. But the second lesson Jesus teaches us is that while such weeds can provide frustration for the farmer or for the Christian, they ultimately can't stop the growth of the good seed. Jesus tells us that we need simply to keep focused on growing until harvest time, to keep living our faith with zeal until the end, asking him to help us bring about much more good seed rather than spending our time complaining about the weeds. At Mass this Sunday, Jesus wants to plant the seed of his word through our ears and to our hearts, as well as to plant himself, the mustard seed, into our mouths and digestive tracts in Holy Communion. Jesus wouldn't be calling us to this mission to be good seed, mustard treeds, and leaven, unless you were prepared to give us everything we need to fulfill it. He gives us that miracle grow fertilizer at Mass, where he tells us anew, whoever has ears to hear ought to hear. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com, and you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy. And you go with our prayers. 